HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45, the show where we answer all of your cooking-related questions. Uh, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, and I'm here with uh, Nastasha Hammer Lopez. Uh, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Today's show is being brought to you by TechServe for all of your Macintosh-related technical needs. They're at www.techserve.com, tech with a K. And uh, uh, they're actually – they're the sponsor, but they're giving away basically their time here uh, to talk about the Lower East Side Ecology Center. And the Lower East Side Ecology Center is having its eighth annual uh, After the Holidays e-waste event uh, with uh, ten events uh, in January. And uh, to find out where and when, you know, when they are, they're in the Lower East Side, which is where I live. Go to uh, LES, that's like Lower East Side, ecologycenter.org. And they're going to help, uh, you know, put good use to all the equipment that you're going to throw away after you get your new equipment uh, after the holidays. Right, Nastasha? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, it, it came to me through the grapevine uh, that uh, some listeners of the show believe that I somehow prevent Nastasha from speaking on, uh, on the radio. In fact, uh, this is not the case. I want all of your readers to know that I would be happy to have Nastasha speak more on the radio. It's that she, she particularly does not want me to make her uh, speak on the radio. So I might make her do some today just to prove that I am not no, purposely trying to hog all of the, the airtime. You know, you don't really... Those of you out there probably don't really know Nastasha that well. She likes to be kind of the, the the puppet master person in the background, you know, manipulating dials and wheels. Doesn't like so much to uh, to speak. She'll, believe me, believe me. When we are not on the radio, she more than makes up for speaking her mind. All right, I'll just put it that way. What do you think, Nastasha? Any any comments? Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, in, in the light of trying to get you to say more, we had an email response. By the way, for those of you that didn't listen last time or any time, you know, uh, we are uh, you know, basically a meat-eating uh, folk. We're a meat-eating crew. I lost a bet uh, about uh, that you know, someone couldn't produce a, any raw chocolate that I would find even remotely palatable. I lost this bet, and as a result, uh, I'm going to have to uh, – and Nastasha decided to join me, although she doesn't have to. Uh, I'm going to 
cook and eat – well, cook. I'm going to prepare and eat a raw, uh, you know, raw food diet for a week, probably sometime in late January or February. Um, now, uh, last week I had said that maybe I would just do – you know, I could eat like raw fish. That's raw, right? Technically raw. And then uh, someone uh, emailed us uh, you know, a response to that basically calling us giant sissies. Uh, more me because Nastasha hadn't said anything because, of course, I never allow her to speak. So you want <laughs> to re- read, uh, read the email there. This comes from Pablo Escobar. The Cooking Issues team, I think you should go raw vegan because, one, the raw chocolate bar you ate was mostly like, most, most, most likely raw vegan. Two, it's typically what it meant by raw foods. Three, it would be awesome to see how you innovate inside of these constraints. Four, a diet where you can eat raw meat and fish for a week just doesn't sound that hard. That's it, right? And, well, as far, it, and he had the one request. Right, said. and as far as the writing goes, I think if you do make it about personal experience, my only advice is don't make it sound too much like a post-apocalyptic survivor story. Well, Pablo, if, it, if, if we don't make it sound like a post-apocalyptic survivor story, it won't be like any other day in our lives. <laughs> Just right. kidding. It's kidding. Like, well, every day for us is basically a survival story in the tech hole. You had to visit us sometime, Pablo, and see we literally live in kind of – a, a small closet hole with no windows. So we don't like the, the entire world could have crumbled around us. And all we'll know is like the, the piled up mass of junk and equipment that, that we live in, in this tiny closet. So our normal lives, it, you know, you know, is basically that a post-apocalyptic problem. So it won't have anything to do with the raw food, but it might have that tone anyway. Right. Nastasha? Right. Well, he also says he tried to do it for a week and it's pretty hard, especially in New York in winter. Oh, because you can't get the good, uh, the yeah. good fruits and whatnot. Well, we could do it. It'll do it. You know, it, it, it's just going to take a lot, a lot of research, and that's the reason I have to put it off for so long. Uh, is I'm going to have to read, you know, basically every book I can find on the subject, because that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. the way. That's the way I roll. Nastasha's rolling her eyes because she knows it's going to be a huge pain in her behind. But I agree with you, Paul, uh, Pablo, rather, and uh, <laughs> sorry, and uh, we will do it. We will do raw vegan because you're correct. It's more of a challenge, and why not take on the challenge? Uh, I told my wife this uh-huh. last night. She was like, "I'm not eating raw. I'm not eating raw food, and you know, for a week." And I said, "Well, what are you going to do about it? I'm the only person that cooks in the whole house or prepares food. I keep on saying cooking. You know what I mean? So like, she's kind of like, other than when she's at work, she has no choice, really. Right. Right. So she's going to do it. Well, I mean, I don't understand her choices. What's well, pizza? Okay. Order pizza and not eat what I'm eating." And see, the most, see, here's the thing, right? It, food is all about being social. So if you, you know, like eating something separate from what my family is eating is kind of the, the worst idea in the world. I would rather eat nothing and go on a Gandhi fast than prepare something separate for myself and the rest of my family. Mm. Like the whole point of eating with your family is you eat together, not a bunch of separate micro meals, you know, that, you know, it, that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so yes, she's going she's gonna to eat. Uh, raw food with me for a week and she'll probably stock up on uh, hamburgers or whatnot when she's at work. Okay. Uh, I had a question last week that I did not answer uh, on eggs. And the, the question was, uh, what is in egg substitutes? And because, uh, you know, they, he was having some problems uh, with baking, using the egg substitutes for baking. So I did some research on it. And uh, there's basically two different classes of uh, egg substitute. The, the one, which I think is the one you're using if you're actually using it to make omelets, is more like – it's called a, like egg beaters, things like that. And they're not really 100 percent egg substitute. They're not typically vegan. They're egg whites, and then they add uh, flavoring 
and uh, coloring and some other functional stuff to make it act more like an egg when you're scrambling it. So what's in the egg beaters, it's 99% egg white apparently, and then the rest of it's color, spice, salt, onion powder, xanthan gum, and guar gum. The xanthan and the guar are going to modify the properties of the uh, egg white and make it a little less hard uh, and also you know, uh, maybe give it some of the proper texture when it's being uh, you know, poured, poured out uh, in, into your pan. So that's what's going to make it kind of act more like an omelet. The coloring is obviously going to make it more you know, uh, more omelet colored, uh, and the onion and whatnot is, I guess, just flavors that they think you want in there. Uh, so that is basically the egg substitute, you know, if you're just, if that's the one you're using, egg beaters. Now, the reason that doesn't work well in baking for you is because they haven't added one of the prime things that is in, uh, eggs, and that is lecithin, right? So eggs contain a good bit of fat, which also, you know, help in baking to, you know, in, you know, make it taste better and, and uh, they they're have functional properties, but there's the emulsifier, lecithin, uh, and other different various uh, phospholipids and things in there. So uh, if you want to use those in conjunction uh, you know, with, um, with soy lecithin, which you can buy, right? That you can add a little bit of soy lecithin and you'll probably get back a lot of the, uh, the same properties that you would get in an egg when you're, when you're baking. So I would add, I don't know, uh, it's so hard to tell. I mean, I would add, you know, w- maybe half a percent by by volume or a percent on egg weight bo- uh, volume of soy lecithin to try and get that um, get that that texture back. I would buy the powdered soy lecithin so you don't have to um, uh, you don't have to heat it too much to, to get it in. You can w- you know blend it in with a stick blender and you should be able to get it in there and that might help your your baked goods uh, perform better. Now they make now the, the the reason why they probably don't put the soy lecithin in there is because they don't. Don't want to add a soy product because it's going to knock out a whole segment of their market if they put a soy product in, and most people aren't using it for baking. Most people who are using egg substitutes for baking are doing it because they want to go vegan. They tip, they don't want eggs. Either they're allergic to eggs or they want an actual vegan product. And so those are typically powders, and they're usually mixtures of modified starches like tapioca and potato starch. Uh, there's The Energy the uh, is like one of the famous brands people use, uh, and it contains basically tapioca starch, uh, uh, potato starch, calcium carbonate, which is uh, a leavening agent. Uh, I don't know why they use calcium carbonate and not other ones, but typically I would use that as a leavening agent, uh, but it's kind of specific. Citric acid, uh, sodium car- carboxymethylcellulose, which is a modified cellulose product, which is going to provide viscosity in the batter, and methylcellulose, which is going to provide viscosity in the batter and also some gelation when uh, the product is heated, and that's going to provide a little bit of structure that uh, the egg would be providing uh, w- while the batter is hot, while you know, while it's hot and being cooked, so when it cools down, whatever starches in your baked thing will have time to set. Now, I, I did a cake with Johnny Azzini from Jean Georges based on this, you know, years ago, where we literally doped a whole, whole ton of uh, methicel—not a whole ton, you know, like you know. 0.8% into a cake and foamed it uh, without adding a lot of uh, egg white because we wanted to produce a sponge batter that didn't have that kind of protein bite to it. And so we use methicel for the same property. So they're, you know, they're basically including something that gels when it heats but ungels when it unheats. They're including thickeners uh, and a little bit of a leavening agent because that's basically what eggs are doing in a, in a baking system. So I hope this answers – do you think that answer did, did I do a good job this week? Yes. As Do po- we get to drink when we're on the raw foods? 
Uh, well, that's interesting. So if you go to pure, I like that Nastasha is all, all she's been thinking about this entire time is whether she gets to drink when we're on the raw food diet. Uh, I believe you do. Uh, the last time I was at uh, Sarma's restaurant, uh, pure pure food, right? Pure food, pure. Uh, you know they have wine, but you know they they typically like all the wines were biodynamic and all that. I, I mean. We don't have to go biodynamic, though, right? That's not part of the part of the list. I don't think so. I don't understand. Like again, I'm going to get a bunch of hate, you know, whatever X, Y, and Z. But I don't really understand the biodynamic thing myself. It's like I understand. I understand. Look, it's true that old school farming methods, like you know, like the lunar cycles and all this other thing, and like planting based on like X, Y, and Z weather science. Sure, I'm sure they have some sort of basis in fact generated by centuries of trial and error, uh, you know, wisdom handed down from the ages. Boom. Yes. Do I believe this? Yes. But like taking a, a horn and like packing it with manure and then burying it in your field doesn't make any dang any dang sense to me at all. You know what I mean? Like that. That seems like hokum. No. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, but but I think that, and I've said this before. I think what's good about it is that if you're spending the time to go out in your fields and bury a horn full of donkey poo in your field, I think it means that you're paying more attention to your crops, which is probably going to make you have a better product. So it's not like that you don't necessarily end up making a better product this way. It's just that um, you know, it's just. You know, it's not because of the horn and the donkey poo. The other thing that's really interesting is I think that a lot of people who are are interested in in you know biodynamics, organics, they never do blind taste tests. I'll never forget this. I went to a wine tasting, and uh, the you know the person was handing out these uh, completely organic biodynamic wines, right? And they were saying, you know. This wine was produced in a field, and the field was overgrown with all sorts of natural vegetation, and it was awesome. All this, it was so it was full of life, and then crickets, and frogs, and birds, and you know, all this stuff, right? And then, right, he's like, and the one next door, it looked totally barren. They had used, you know, chemicals on it, and there's nothing growing but the grapes. It was, you know, completely unlifelike. There was no blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, wow. So you tasted them side by side, and you really noticed a difference in the wine. So he's like, ah, why would I taste that wine? I was like, what? What? The whole point is you taste the two wines, and you prove that your method does a better job. So we need to find someone who actually knows that situation. You can find two producers with very similar soils and climates and varieties, like everything same, same, but one's doing the biodynamic action and one's not, and then we do a side-by-side. That's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Would that be interesting to you? Yes. So if any of you out there have this capability, please call uh, or uh, write in. So anyway, let's go to our uh, first commercial break, but remember to call in your questions too, 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues. How you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. It's so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I'm feeling right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother? Hey, Jam. Sure getting down. Look at him. Ha. We're going to have. Yeah, 
That's 718-497-2128. Coming to you live today from the refrigerated trailer that is Roberta's Pizzeria Radio Station. Please come out and eat at the restaurant, though. The restaurant's nice and toasty. It's just the radio station that's uh, a refrigerated storage unit. Perhaps Patrick's storing his meat here from the uh, Heritage Food, and that's why it has to be so cold. Okay. Um, now, I have a question, a uh, second-time question from Max. Uh, and, again, some of it uh, is un- unprintable. Uh, so he says, he, you know, what? I, we used a phrase, and maybe Nastasha can say it, so I don't have to say it this time, for a stick blender. The dildo stick. Yeah, okay, yeah. And uh, he said, don't worry about that, but, it, you know, if you, if you, if you don't want to use that, he gives me a word. I'm not really sure what, what language it is, but um, I, I'm a little worried, knowing Max's questions, I'm a little worried to actually say it for fear that I might be saying something. But he says it translated to lopsided carrot as, as the stick blender. That's the slang he uses anyone. Anywho, uh, he has an interesting question. Uh, and his question is, uh, why not pig's milk? It, and this, Max, is an excellent question, and y- you've been worried about it for, for years, a- as have I, although you seem to have actually you know, arrived at the same answer I did and uh, also you know, sp- spoken to more people about it, perhaps at more pig farmers, because if you spoke to at least one, you've spoken to more than I have. But the, um, uh, the, the, the question that always comes to mind is we have yak's milk cheese, we have camel's milk cheese, we have cow's milk cheese, we have goat's milk cheese, we have sheep's milk cheese. Can you think of any other animals? They, like yeah. No, right? I mean, basically, m- domestic animals, uh, they make milk and you get cheese out of them. Why is there no pig milk and or, and or pig cheese, right? Now, uh, the kind of the answer I'd always you know, come up with in my head and spoken to, you know, I, I actually have spoken to some pig farmers. But the, the, the answer is, is that, hey, look, when a pig gives birth, you use the milk. Uh, from that pig to feed the piglets straight up, you know, and then you take them off of the uh, – when they take them off, you wean the, wean the pig off of uh, – mean the pig stops lactating so that you can have pigs again because pigs, unlike other animals, are really meat machines. You know what I mean? It's not, they're not kind of multi-use animals. I mean we get leather out of it, sure, boars, bristles and, and whatnot, but compared to the cow where we get milk, where we get leather, you know, a lot of leather uh, or compared to the, you know, the sheep or, or the goat where we can get wool and we can get meat and we can get milk. Or the chicken, where we can get meat and egg. The pig is a meat machine. You know, it takes garbage and well, it used to take garbage and crap that you would otherwise not be able to use and convert it into meat that your family can eat. And so, I think the idea was is that you want to fatten up the little pigs to get them into meat uh, as fast as possible. Another interesting thing that I did not know, uh, Max, and thank you for bringing it up, is um, that. Pigs don't produce nearly the amount of milk that uh, cows produce, you know, per per body per you know percent body weight. Uh, well, actually, maybe four percent body weight. But he, Max says that the average pig is going to produce thirteen pounds of milk a day, as opposed to a cow that produces sixty-five pounds of milk per day. Yeah, but you know what, Max? A, a cow is a whole hell of a lot bigger than a pig. I mean, a lot, unless you have a giant, like, super fat pig. So if you were going to breed a fairly young uh, a sow that was like on the range of like two hundred pounds or something like that, like which is normal about slaughter weight. You're going to breed it once. I mean, to get, you know, 13 pounds of milk out of that as opposed to, you know, a cow that weighs, you know, well over a thousand pounds doesn't seem like such a bad, like such a bad trade, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it goes to the fact that, you know, they just use it to feed the, the pigs. Now, if I had someone with a lot of money, sure, I would either mechanically, 
you know, feed those pigs something else, if that's even possible, I don't even know, and then just take the milk. I mean, Max, I think that, you know, ne- next, I don't know where you, where you live, but next time you're around, maybe we can find someone and just run an experiment. I mean, you could probably pay a farmer, the, like, if you, if you paid the farmer the entire cost of the litter of pigs that was going to be fed off of this pig, I am, you know, certain that he or she would sell the milk, and then you could taste it, see whether it's delicious, and, uh, and make some cheese out of it. I mean, um, you know, uh, I think that's entirely entirely reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Mm-hmm. There was, to, you know, not to get you know gross about it, but there was a chef I forget who it was in New York who was uh, using his wife's breast milk uh, to prepare things. But I think that was just a gimmick. I mean, it's got to be a gimmick. I mean, I've you know I have two kids. Oh, no, Listen, I, I, no, I have two kids, and I, I'll tell you, you know, that if you if you have kids and and you're your wife or, or you, if you're a woman, you know, had to basically, you know, pump milk so that you could go to work and then feed the kid the milk, then, you know, this is like a super precious commodity. This is not something that you're taking to the restaurant and turning into dairy products. This is like liquid gold that you treasure. And when you accidentally leave one out and it, and it goes bad on the counter, you, you know, you, you, you know, you, you're, you know, racked with grief and, and horror and pain. You know what I mean? So it's not like something that I think you would normally normally do but if a chef can do that then you can definitely get some pig milk and if you get your hands on some max please you know let me in on it at least call me send me an email and tell me how the stuff worked out because uh you know i'm dying to know right nastasha's not saying anything i i told you she doesn't want to speak on the air it's not me it's not me um what (laughs) okay so, uh, hey, look, this is all in good tone, by the way. This is still a family show. I've not said anything. Anyway, uh, Ben writes in and says, Some recipes, particularly, uh, particularly many Middle Eastern recipes for basmati rice and most Asian recipes for short grain rice, call for you to rinse, soak, and or drain rice before cooking. Other rices and recipes tell you strictly never to wash rice. What does washing do for the final product? Is there any reason to use... Uh, one rice uh, washing method over another. Does the type of rice affect this decision? The temperature of the water, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? Yes. There. No. Uh, so the problem is, is that every culture uh, has their own style of rice cooking and also their own style of rice that they're using. Here in the U.S., right? If you're if you're using a um, an enriched rice that they enrich with. Uh, you know, with, with you know, nutrients and stuff like that. A lot of them are basically dusted on. So then if you were to rinse the rice, you would rinse off all of that, all of that stuff. Now, that's not an issue so much if you're using uh, rice that hasn't been enriched or if you use rice that's been enriched with, uh, you know, I think they have one where they spray it like a, almost like a wax or an oil base in it or something like that where it stays in better with rinsing. So I think when someone tells you specifically, specifically not to rinse it, what they're doing is they're uh, basically saying don't wash off the nutrients, I would guess, right? Now, the reason to rinse rice is because during the milling process of rice, uh, there is excess uh, bran and starch that's on left on the outside of the rice. There's also, you know, some of the rice is processed in some pretty nasty conditions. You know, you know, it could have twigs, it could have rocks, it could have dirt, it could have you know animal or other types of bad products in it. So. Uh, rinsing is a good step to clean it out. And in fact, if you take uh, rice and rinse it, 
uh, most any rice that you can get, the rice turns cloudy really quickly, which means that there's a lot of soluble starch that's coming off of it, or at least some sort of soluble powder. Back in the day, they also told you to rinse it because uh, when they were milling it or, uh, and, and sending it out, they would have a, a little bit of talc in to uh, increase the kind of whiteness and also I think as a milling aid, and you need to wash the, the talc out. So the rinsing step is most often to get rid of starch that's on the uh, outside or that might that might you know interfere with things. And uh, so you know if you take a Japanese rice, right, which is somewhat sticky to begin with, but you don't want it, you don't want the grains to be all glopped together, right? Then you're in a situation where, hey, look, you're going to do a lot of rinsing of this rice, especially because they don't cook it in a lot of boiling water, right? There's not that much point. In, um, in, in rinsing your rice if you're going to cook it in an excess of boiling water like it's done in some, in some in Indian recipes because if you're going to cook it in an excess of boiling water, right, the starch that is going to come off is going to be relatively diluted unless it's quite dirty, in which case maybe you have to rinse it anyway. But if you're going to cook it in uh, either steamed or small amount of water, right, like, like you would like a small amount of water for Japanese cooking, if you don't wash off that rice and there's any starch on the outside, then it's going to become sticky because the rice already has that, – that medium grain rice already has a bit of stickiness to it. So to get it to be exactly the right texture, you want to wash it until the water runs clear and there's no more starch coming off of it. And that's where those instructions come from. Now, um, you know, other types of rice, I don't think it's going to matter one way or the other uh, too much. So for instance, like you – know, and, and, and coming to soaking and cooking technique, a lot depends on the, on the type of rice. Soaking, right, your rice as opposed to washing it. You wash it and then you might soak it. Soaking it is helpful in situations where you want to either not use as much fuel because you want to get some of the water in before you start cooking or it also helps because any sort of water pre-soaking into the rice is going to make the cook time quicker and also more even. So if you have a rice that tends to split open on the outside before the inside is cooked, right, uh, then if you soak it beforehand, you're going to get a, a much uh, faster and more even cook, and the rice is going to come out better. Similarly, with a sticky rice that's steamed, right, you soak it beforehand because if you don't, it's going to be hard for the steaming method to uh, to get the uh, you know get more moisture in. So the pre-soak on a steaming thing like that really helps cooking. Uh, sticky rice. Now, on a parboiled rice, right? The reason why you can boil parboiled rice in a lot of water for a long time, and you know, it gets a bad name in this country because it's called converted rice. You know, like Uncle Ben's converted brand rice. Uh, it gets a bad name here because people think it's some sort of newfangled like like bullshnaz. But in fact, right, it's a, an ancient and fantastic technique where you take whole rice, whole you know, in still in the hull, and you boil it for a period of time in the hull, and you actually increase the nutrient content content of your rice by boiling in the hull because you get some of the – well, so they say. I haven't really actually read the studies. But you, uh, you, know, you get some of the nutrient from the hull into the rice. Also, you pre-gelatinize some of that rice starch. Then when you cool it down, it uh, – what's called retrogrades, recrystallizes and becomes resistant to swelling and bursting again. So parboiled rice actually doesn't necessarily cook faster. The ones that cook faster are also – uh, sometimes parboiled and then pre-boiled again and dried, right? So that they're basically they're pre-cooked, which is different really from parboiled. And they cook very fast, like minute rice, things like that. But traditional parboiled rice, which they have, a, you know, a lot of Indian rices that are parboiled, uh, don't actually uh, cook uh, faster. I don't think, although I'd have to go back and check. It's been a long time since I've looked at a recipe. But um, the interesting thing about them is that they don't rupture or break apart. The grains stay firm and together, even if they're cooked for a long time and even
even if they're cooked in a lot of water. So it's a very good technique to get uh, individual grains that have a lot of bounce. They're harder in texture even though they're cooked uh, because the starches basically you want to think of them as being kind of preset or, or you know kind of strengthened this, uh, by this, this technique of parboiling, uh, cooling it, uh, starch retrograding, then milling it. And, and then cooking it again. Uh, so there's a lot to do and uh, it, with rice. It's extremely complicated. It's based on you know the type of rice you're using, the culture you're dealing with, and 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 the recipe you're using. I think if your rice is coming out sticky, you're going to be better off, and you don't want it to be. You, you, maybe you could benefit from some rinsing. If you don't want to rinse, right, uh, and you do like Japanese style, you can buy what's called the rinse-free rice. And it has a Japanese word, which if I had it in front of me, I would attempt to pronounce, but I won't because I won't pronounce it out of my head because I'll get it wrong, and then everyone will laugh at me. But rinse-free rice uses a kind of newer uh, milling technology that allows you to have a Japanese rice that has all of that uh, extra starch and, and, and bran coating on the outside completely uh, removed without the need for rinsing. Mushime? I'm not, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to do it. Anyway, uh, so – it, it all depends. I wish I could have a hard and fast answer for you, but uh, it, it's there is no hard and fast answer. It's just knowing what the variables are and um, kind of how they how they interact. Um, is this, was that useful at all? You think? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. You want to take a break? All right, we'll go to our second commercial break. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? That hey, jam. Sure getting down. Look at him. We're going. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call on your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We heard from uh, Kang Ingber. He was the uh, gentleman that uh, called in about his uh, his uh, mom's turkey, uh, which was left out in the stoop, I believe, in – was it Brooklyn or Queens? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And, uh, and you know, the question was why didn't uh, why didn't he die? And, you know, I thought that was an interesting question. And so um, – and he's still alive, thank God. So he emailed us uh, uh, another one. He had a question about um, – the Araby. And the Araby is a coffee machine. I believe it's called an Araby. It's a coffee machine uh, invented by the same guy that invented the – it's not called an Araby, is it? 
It's called the, the aerobi, the little frisbee that came out like in the 80s. It's like a little ring that you can throw like the length of a whole football field even if you're like a tiny kid. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Jeez, man, I'm old. Anyway, so this guy invented a coffee machine. Uh, uh, I guess it is called the aerobi. Anyway, so it's a coffee machine where he, you know, he, he basically said, look – uh, I want to increase the amount of pressure in uh, in the brewing chamber so that I can force the coffee through and, and thereby, I guess, get better extraction. So it's a very simple mechanism. It's a piston that you drive the uh, hot water through your through the puck, right, uh, and produce uh, coffee. Now, the the question has always been, is this espresso? And I, I'm saying this. I still, Nastasha, let's just buy one of these dang things. Are they expensive? They're like forty bucks. We'll charge it to the school. Let's buy. <gasps> Well, anyway, well, no, seriously, we'll buy it and we'll experiment with it because I've gotten enough questions from it that I've never tried it, so I feel kind of like a moron every time I talk about it. But it's, it's a, you know, it, it's by all accounts a good product, but the question is, does it make espresso? And my answer is uh, no because – and, of course, Ken calls me out on this and he goes, well – Part of the controversy is semantic because if you define espresso as a beverage brewed at 195, there's a range there, but yeah, at nine bars, also a range, with a mouse tail out of the portafilter, then a device that brews at 175 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what the aerobi apparently does, with moderate hand pressure, it can't make espresso. And that's true. Uh, That's what I'm saying. But I don't think it's merely semantic because if you look at at, um, the book – the Chemistry of Quality, Espresso, Espresso, The Chemistry of Coffee by Andrea Ely, which is, I believe, available again. It was unavailable for a couple of years and is available again. There are numerous charts and graphs showing extraction and the type of not just the, the, like how much is extracted, but what is extracted at varying different pressures and temperatures. So you're, you know, it's not going to be the same cup of coffee because brewing kinetics is extremely complicated. Uh, and you know, in the new year, if I ever find time, I have a lot to do with, with, with espressos and pressures and things like that. But it's extremely complicated. So I'm not saying that it can't make a fantastic cup of coffee and maybe the best mocha-style pot you know, coffee ever. But I also wouldn't call, and I don't dislike, by the way, mocha pot means those little kind of octagonal things that you put on your stove and the water boils up through them and makes coffee. That's mocha pot. Everyone know what I'm talking about? Um, they're cheap. They're fine. Those things are they're fine. They're great. They make a decent cup of coffee for what they are, for a mocha cup of coffee, right? They are a short, uh, strong cup of coffee. However, to me, that does not mean that it is espresso. That is a different animal entirely, right? So I'm not saying it doesn't make a great cup of coffee. And I and I, I shouldn't even talk about it until I get one, but I feel like I should address your, your question now. Um, I don't feel that it could possibly make the same thing as uh, as an espresso, at least not – of course, nine-tenths of the espresso you get out uh, anywhere is dreck anyway. And so you might as well make it any dang way because the people who make it you know, care not a whit for how it's made or what it tastes like. You know, yeah. Like, like nine, nine, t- nine times out of ten, you go and someone's pulling a shot in like – 15 seconds or 45 seconds and they don't really care that you know that you know what the shot time is they're not really accurate with their dosing they're not really accurate with their tamping their grinders aren't adjusted properly i mean any one of those variables throw off in your espresso is not going to be the same at which point you know maybe you might as well just make it out of a 40 you know a 40 dollar pot which is, which is not to be disparaging on the 40 dollar thing i really want to get one experiment with it maybe maybe it'll change my life and you know i'll throw away my la san marco espresso machine anyway 
I don't know. Uh, I, I, but it definitely needs some experimentation. And he also pointed me to a really interesting um, little uh, thing on Coffee Geek, which is a fantastic website, by the way. I've, I love Coffee Geek. Uh, I've been going to it for a long, long time. I lurk there. I never really comment, but it's a fantastic site. And um, uh, it points to a person who's measuring their coffee extraction using a refractometer, which is I've heard about before, but I've never actually done it. And again, now I feel foolish for not having done it because wh- one of the main you know quality characteristics in coffee is how much stuff you're extracting out of the coffee bean. And the way one of the ways you can test this obviously is by measuring how much stuff other than water is in the coffee when you're done. And uh, a lot of people use what's called a total dissolved solids meter that's basically measuring the conductivity to, to do this. And instead, this other gentleman, his name escapes me, is using a refractometer, which seems like a fantastic uh, technique and a really great way for someone at home or even in a restaurant to make sure that their coffee is staying on point, at least in terms of extraction. But remember, even at the same level of total extraction, right, out of coffee, it doesn't mean you're extracting the same thing, right? At different temperatures, different things are going to extract differently. So if you get, let's say, whatever you're going to get, like, you know, 10% extraction out of the coffee, right, bean, right? Let's say you get that. Well, who's to say that it's the same 10%? You're just measuring, you don't know that you don't know the distribution of, you know, of the different elements that you're sucking out of the coffee and how that's affected by the pressure and the temperature. So to measure uh, the performance of a machine strictly based on uh, extraction in terms of what it reads on a refractometer, I think is missing what, uh, you know, the full kind of gestalt of what's going on in espresso. And it also harks back to, you know, I think a, a real problem with all of food science, which is, you know, we often, uh, you know, I read, I read food science and, and you need to make metrics. You need to quantify what you're doing in order to have a result, in order to have repeatability, especially in industrial commercial scale. But often these measurements, which are trying to measure very, something very specific, like crispness, they're trying to measure like how, you know, how hard it is to break and deform a crust, let's say, or total dissolved solids, or any one of a number of things. These metrics, um, are really measuring something that isn't a single variable but are controlled by a wide variety of uh, different things that are going on within food systems. I mean the reason that food systems and drink systems are so interesting other than the fact that they're delicious and we eat them every day is that there is such a richness to be encountered with a very small number of ingredients, starting ingredients. And so – you know, it's very hard to get a, a, a set of metrics that's actually going to work as well as – Looking at it with your eyes, feeling it with your hands, and tasting it with your mouth because in the end, right, that is all we really care about, right? I mean the, 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 the repeatability, the metrics, the thermometers, all, which I all love. I love all that stuff because I love any gadget. Anyone knows me loves – I love any gadget. But the – you know, like all of that is only an aid – uh, to trying to uh, you know, get, get to the best instrument of all, which is your tongue and your nose and your eyes. Uh, so that's my, my, my feeling. On the other hand, I'm going to go out and get a refractometer that I can measure my coffee with. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so I think in the time that we have left, I will discuss uh, uh, alkal- alkalinity and uh, some, some interesting things I think that we've been working on. Last week, uh, someone asked a question about Maillard reactions, and I somehow got into a riff on Thai uh, lime water. Right? Remember that? Yeah. And uh, 
So uh, I read this website uh, by uh, it's called She Simmers. She's a blog, and she had a, a you know a bunch of stuff on Thai cooking. I think her, her she is Thai or her family is Thai, and uh, they use this uh, limestone water, which is slaked lime, calcium hydroxide, and they do numerous things. I've used it for years to harden bananas up um, when I'm going to you know make a foster or something like that, so that the bananas get a cooked taste, but they don't break up. Apparently, it can also be used for pumpkins, uh, but she uses it. And apparently it's traditionally to be used in frying batters as well. And I was extremely interested in, uh, in that because she says it makes it crispier now uh, in, a rice, in a rice flour situation. Uh, we have tested that, and I haven't – we haven't gotten any conclusive answers, right, Nastasha? Right, yeah. I mean, Nastasha preferred the one with, <laughs> the, with the lime water in it because she likes the flavor of the lime water, which is reminiscent of – pretzels or reminiscent of a tortilla because it's got this calcium hydroxide, this lye kind of flavor that Nastasha really liked. But it didn't seem like it was any crispier. No. And it also didn't seem like it browned any faster. I was thinking it was going to brown a lot faster because alkalinity accelerates Maillard reactions. Right. Well, right. yeah, we have to run all those again. Though. Yeah, we have to – again and again and again and again. I, you know, because of that question on Maillard reactions, I'm now in like a, probably a five-month K-hole of worried about alkalinity and noodles and, um, you know, and batters and frying because it turns out that, that this lie – you know, the, use of alkaline cooking methods is – goes across – uh, kind of, you know, the world and culture was, was used in various places completely separately from each other. So when I started reading about this Thai red lime paste and it came to my, you know, attention that it's basically just calcium hydroxide, well, calcium hydroxide is cal, right? Is what, the, what is used in, um, you, know, you know, south of the border here in Mexico and Central America uh, and, you know, I guess South America to uh, nixtamalize corn, right? And so uh, nixtamalization is the reason why everybody who lived here isn't dead, right? Because, uh, it, you know, if your main staple is corn, right, uh, and you don't know how to nixtamalize, which is also the best word in the English language, right? It's not even English, but it's the best – nixtamalization, that's like a, that's an awesome word, am I right? Yeah. Anyway, so if you, if you don't uh, – uh, and the way nixtamalization works is you take calcium hydroxide, you, you put uh, that in water with dried corn, uh, you heat it for a while, and then you let it steep. And what happens is from a functional standpoint, uh, it makes it easier to mill and to grind because in, uh, back in the day, they would be grinding uh, the corn after it was uh, you know, boiled and soaked on something called uh, matate mano, which is like this like stone thing with like uh, the mano is like a square thing. And they would grind it that way directly from the corn grains into the masa that you would make the tortilla out of or whatever. You were grinding it to make tamales or whatever. And, uh, and so I'm buying one, by the way, today. Yeah, anyway, going to Nastasha's neighborhood to buy one. Anyway, uh, so the basically it was easier for them to mill. It also – the alkalinity uh, softened the husk on the outside of the, of the corn and also thereby making it easier to mill. But uh, the, the process of boiling and soaking in, uh, in alkaline solution because calcium hydroxide is alkaline did two other things uh, – uh, well, one more functional thing. It made the dough easier to work. If you don't, if you just take cornmeal and mix it with water, it doesn't have the right texture uh, of uh, masa, right? Uh, 
partially the boiling pre uh, pre gelatinizes the starch a little bit, and so that helps the uh, the dough stick together. It provides some structure that it doesn't it w- you know you, because there's no gluten, you need some structure in the dough, and so pre gelatinizing some of the starch on the outside of the corn kernel in the beginning of the boiling procedure uh, helps to do that, and also treating it with um, the the um, alkaline solution, the calcium hydroxide. Uh, that also causes the starch to be able to hold, the, hold more water, right? And so it in, improves the dough uh, capability. So it, it holds more water. It's going to feel drier for a particular uh, for a particular water concentration. And it all, all in all makes the dough easier to handle, uh, easier to form into uh, into tortilla. And so without nixtamalization, there is no real tortilla production, right? But here is the kicker: it also makes niacin available in the corn that was not available beforehand. So you get a bunch of Europeans showing up and they ship the corn over to Europe and they grow it, right? And it was cheap and easy to grow. So they grow it and they start eating a largely corn-based diet and they all get pellagra because they're not getting the niacin because the dunces don't look and see that, you know, there's this procedure that's been done for, you know, millennia, literally millennia, right, of nixtamalization. They don't think that's important. They think that they can just take the the, the, crank, uh, the grain crop, corn, and build a whole culture around it without doing the nixtamalization, and as a result, we get pellagra. So this is a process. It also has another effect is it in, a, in a culture that was probably deficient in milk at the time prior to the domestication of uh, milk-producing animals, to go back to Max's question. Uh, the calcium hydroxide also radically increases the amount of calcium that's uh, in the tortilla because the calcium goes into the corn. And so all of a sudden now you have a lot more calcium available to the system. You have a, uh, a lot easier pro- uh, thing to work with as a dough, and you have uh, – and you have niacin, so it's good. It's all good. Now, I became interested in this uh, because I'm interested in all things uh, like that, and so we started nixtamalizing things based, you know, based on the fact that we're playing around with it using Thai red lime paste. I'm now uh, we're gonna tomorrow or the day after we're gonna tour tor- uh, Tortilleria Nixtamal, which is like the only place in New York that uses its own. Uh, um, makes its own nixtamal. I'm getting a matate because I did some nixtamalization of popcorn, which is weak. Don't try to do it with popcorn. It's not the right kind of corn. I've read on the internet that it, it works fine. It does not work fine. It doesn't, I mean, it works fine, but it doesn't mill very well. And without the stone grinder, the, the matate mano, I, over the weekend when I was making uh, tortilla for you know my family for, for Sunday dinner, I blew out my Vita Prep like three times. I blew out my Cuisinart. It was a king hell mess, and I still didn't get the texture exactly right. So today, when I pick up the official Mexican grinder, I'll tell you whether or not, you know, next week hopefully, whether or not it works. But I'm also interested in nixtamalizing other grains other than corn for just for, – for giggles, right? So what – you know, we've done barley, we've done uh, rye, and we've done wheat. And I've had some success and some failure, and we'll, we'll come back on it. But I, basically, we made something that was made with rye that had it had a rye flavor, which Nastasha doesn't like, unfortunately, because she doesn't like things that are delicious. And, but also the flavor of uh, tortilla, right? So the, a lot of the tortilla flavor, what what differentiates it from just you know a. Uh, uh, cornmeal cake is that lye cooking has a characteristic flavor, right? And so next time you bite into a tortilla, think about the difference between that and unnixtamalized corn and that flavor. And so I was achieving that flavor in other grains.
grains. Uh, now, we haven't yet done the control side-by-side side of whether just boiling it for the same length of time without using the lime is going to produce the same kind of mm-hmm. batter. But this is what we're working on in, uh, in cooking issues. We want to bring nixtamalization to the next level. We're, like, like usual, we're not content with just learning, which we're going to do on Thursday, from the people, real people who do it every day. So that, you know, it's always best to go visit someone who does it every day so that you can get a feel for what it's like to do it right. I mean, it sure beats the you know 400 pages of nixtamalization crap I read in the scientific literature that I downloaded off of my illegal connection to Columbia's uh, servers. But the, um, the you know, uh, nothing beats going and touching the real stuff, eating it, tasting it. I will have practiced with my matate mano by the time we make it to it. And next week, this time, you, I mean, I won't be a master. Also, I'm not going to use a tortilla press because it seems to me like that's like a sissy move. I need to learn to be like a, a Mexican grandma. My goal in life, other than, you know, like doing a good job on this raw food thing that we're going to do, you know, is I, you know, and this is a long time life goal is to become a uh, a Mexican grandma. So that means I need I already have a mocajete in my house, the little stone grinder which I've had for for years and you know the little like, you know, mortar and pestle. Uh, I've had one of those for, you know, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years. So now when I get this grinder, I'm one step closer and when I can form tortillas effortlessly by hand without a press, I am and but then I have to learn Spanish. And if I once I learn Spanish, I will officially be a Mexican grandma. Uh, and uh, with that, I will tell you to go. We have a new post up. Go check it out. It's uh, on pears. Uh, Nastasha and I did a great pear tasting, and I finally posted on it months later because I'm a lazy weasel. <laughs> Cooking issues. Fishes, fishes, fuck up.